0: We had been reaching with our reading and analysis of the text to the Sutra number 16 last time, from the first chapter of this text. I remind the subject, Patanjali has gone pretty systematically through the text. He has told us what he considered that yoga is. He told us about the modifications of the mind and he defined the five classes of modifications of the mind. We are going to come back to those He is going to make one more mention on those. Then automatically he defined those five forms, the right knowledge and all the others. And eventually he gave us the method for fighting with these attachments of the mind, which were basically detachment and perseverance. And now in the Sutra number 17, he is already defining the result, he is talking about the goal. The sutra number 17 defines already the first state, the first degrees of samadhi. Generally, Patanjali calls these high states of consciousness, which are above the states of concentration and meditation, we are going to refresh again his eightfold system in which concentration is step number six, meditation is step number seven, and step number eight is generically and generally called samadhi. This term samadhi automatically can create some confusions and I'm going to comment upon that in a second. The sutra itself tells, and it's one of the simple interpretations of it, that the samprajnata samadhi the so-called samprajnata yoga or samprajnata samadhi is accompanied by and he mentions four factors reasoning in approximate translation reasoning reflection bliss and sense of individuality all these uh, will be commented in detail in a second First, let us mention this. It's the first time that truly in the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali there comes the, we, we encounter the concept Samadhi. Until now, Patanjali told us in Sutra number two that Yoga is the arresting of the movements of the mind, those modifications, but he hasn't been using the concept of Samadhi. Using the concept of Samadhi is a quite problematic issue especially when you link it with a Buddhist tradition. Why? Every tradition, generally in spirituality, when it is coming and grafting on another tradition, first one of the things which it does, is that it starts arguing as comparatively to the other tradition. Because if I'm coming and bringing a new yoga, then everybody here will send me notes telling us, tell us by what is this yoga of yours special? By what does it differ from other people's yoga? In the same way, when Buddha came and preached the truth, it is possible that many uh, spiritualists of India, they told him, hey Buddha, good morning. You know, it's kind of, you are not the first and you are not the last. What do you have to bring new? What is your message which is so new? Because there have been enlightened beings before you, because the spiritual tradition of India is a very old tradition. So there have been great rishis before you, and no doubt there will be others after you, who will be practicing yoga or other things. What's the big deal about what you have to teach? And therefore, a tradition usually defines like... like defines itself like saying we continue this truth and this truth and this is the same, but actually we think that before they did things in a rather wrong way, and therefore we think it goes in another way. In the time of Buddha, Buddha had both technical reasons to argue with the previous yogic, let's call it yogic, spiritualism of India which existed in those days, and he had also social reasons to argue with those. The social reason was no doubt overwhelming. The Brahmanic tradition in the days of Buddha had become completely stuck with all, specially, specially, specially with the issue on castes. The caste discrimination and a few other ritual fixations, many of them which still exist in India, full power today, even after 25 centuries buddha simply declared them as insignificant absurd ridiculous useless therefore buddha uh, demolished so in a social way said simply this brahmanism hinduism whatever it was called in those days it is obsolete it is obscene it is mm, whatever it is not the real spirituality and all these things and he proposed a new model of the world a society in which people would be Buddhist monks and so on and uh, all the things which are related to that Buddhist tradition to the early Buddhist tradition. Also it seems from as far as we know the personal history of Buddha of Gautama Buddha that this Buddha has subjected himself to some traditional spiritual practice Because he didn't invent everything. He ran away from home desperate that he needed to find a solution to the fear of death, the fear of disease and old age, the fear of suffering and human misery. And where would he go? He went in the forest to the so-called Samans of those days. Not shamans, attention. Samans, which were a branch of ascetic yogis, And from there they derive all kind of wild stories, anecdotic stories about Buddha performing (coughs) hardcore asceticism. And the legend tells us that he did some versions say six years and some versions say twelve years of that. That practice which he did in the forest was some sort of yoga. Only that it appears very much from, because the tree is known by the fruits ultimately, that that form of yoga was a form whatever he learned there and of course Buddha couldn't have learned all the yoga of all the parts of India because India is gigantic when you have to cross it by foot it's a subcontinent and therefore definitely Buddha has learned something which might have been very (coughs) widespread or very peculiar to the area where he particular to the area where he was living The fact is that Buddha declared himself dissatisfied with that form which might have been a Raja Yoga or something like this because actually that did not bring to him enlightenment. Actually we can't even say today that whatever Buddha has practiced there in the forest that it wouldn't bring enlightenment to anybody and never did. Maybe it did from time to time. Fact is that it did not yield results in a number of years for Buddha, for Gautama Buddha. And Gautama Buddha considered that that sort of meditation was very much ascetic, tense. It looks very much like it was a form of concentrating the mind and obtaining siddhis, paranormal capabilities of the mind. And then Buddha finally, when he took his leave from those guys... He made his heroic strive. The truth is that at that time he was 98% full of yoga. So he was almost there. And that's why he needed just a last impulse. And being there but not quite satisfied, he went under his famous body tree, apparently in Bodh Gaya of today. And he decided he was going to meditate until he will reach this final conclusion. And so he did. And then there appeared, of course, the feeling that that ancient thing, which is some suppose of some early yoga, some primitive yoga, some old days yoga, was not good enough. And what did those yogis do? Here is the point. It appears that those yogis were teaching all kind of intense exercises of concentration. Any one of you who is a little bit in yoga knows that in every classical yoga you perform trataka on dots or things like this. So there are many exercises of concentration and they are imperiously necessary. They are absolutely necessary because they are building up something. They are not a purpose in themselves. They are the steps of a ladder and without those steps you will never make it up to the higher steps of the ladder. Many people say, well, Buddha did it. Yes, after he did 12 years or 6 years in the forest, day in and day out. <clears throat> therefore, many people do not have uh, an, ob- an objective view upon this. And therefore, uh, Buddhism, when it started defining itself as, no, we are separate, we are, pro- we are producing or we are suggesting a new thing, they have, of course, tried or Try to put down that old-fashioned yoga and all these, all these forms of yoga of the mind. Was it with me or with you? This noise. I have a phone which sounds the same. It was with you, okay? Because mine rings just the same. Back to our story. So, therefore they analyzed what did the yogis do. And the yogis were, for example, doing concentration. If you don't make concentration on a dot, you can make concentration on a little pebble or stone. You hang a pebble and you look at it, and you look at it without blinking and winking, and you focus, and this. Of course, if you go deeper and deeper, this generates a phenomenon, which is actually mentioned very clearly in the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, but only in chapter 3, someone will reach there, will go into it, which is called identification, that you become one with it. By a twist of names, either because the yoga tradition was esoteric and these people didn't know what they were talking about, or simply some confusion, the yogis, I'm sorry, the Buddhists, have taken that what the yogis did, this concentration on a dot or on a pebble or on the pole star or on your own belly button or whatever other concentrations, absorptive concentrations, identifying concentrations, completely absorptive concentrations, existed in yoga, they have been called samadhi. While the name is not really correct It is not what Patanjali would say about it. And then the name Samadhi was used like, yes, you know, the yogis are striving for Samadhi. And what is this Samadhi but just a concentration in which your mind becomes a pebble, a tree, an elephant, belly button, pole star or whatever else. And then, therefore, of course, this being a concentration with an object, with a concrete object, in which the mind simply took a form, a manifested form, has been ridiculed, or at least it has been put down, like, hey, this is not really nirvana, this is not really the wisdom, this is not really the solution to the human problems, and therefore, it has been said, this samadhi, Uh, then Buddhists have been asked, uh, what are you aiming for? Oh, we are not aiming for Samadhi. Samadhi, the yogis are aiming for. We are aiming for nirvana. The truth is that according to the way Patanjali speaks, Samadhi means nirvana, period. But funny enough, some scholars and some pundits could not see that, and it is even until today some forms of Buddhism which spread which split away from India, and they have gone mostly in Sri Lanka, in Thailand, and these areas, and especially because of the vernaculars, because many things are written in the Pali dialect and not in Sanskrit, actually, and many words get a bit distorted, they don't sound exactly like in Sanskrit, then automatically this confusion has remained over the centuries, that actually the Buddhists consider that Samadhi is not a big deal, And actually you have to reach this pure awareness. That Samadhi which the Buddhists have taken from Pali and everything is not the Samadhi of Patanjali. That Samadhi is a Samyama, if you want, in Sanskrit. And it means actually a concentration with deep absorption. And that concentration with deep absorption, which is a manifested aspect, is indeed not the answer. It's not the ultimate Samadhi, and it is not the answer to the big issue, who am I and why am I here. That definitely is not the void or the Buddha nature. But remember, in the yoga of Patanjali, which apparently has been put on paper centuries later than the advent of Buddhism, perhaps even as a reply to the blossoming of buddhism in those centuries remember that Patanjali uses the word Samadhi with a different meaning. This is always the problem that in Sanskrit and in the yogic and especially Indian environment they are very sloppy about some uh, meanings and they don't care if the same word is used by these guys with a meaning and by that guys with another meaning and they basically don't have a rigorous system in some of these aspects. That is why, that is the first thing which needs to be mentioned. Patanjali, when speaking about Samadhi, speaks about Samadhi as about the top of the human experience, but at the same time he makes a concession. He doesn't speak about Samadhi as one thing, he speaks about Samadhi as a cluster of accomplishments, out of which some of them are just high forms of meditation, and they could even be called some forms of absorption, and therefore you say, well, you got this Samadhi, but this is not enlightenment yet. Right, it is not, but it is 99% enlightenment, which is pretty good, I would say. And therefore, Patanjali has become more elastic. He has used the word Samadhi, which was criticized like... a by, by misunderstanding, again it was criticized, he gave it the full value that the word Samadhi means nirvana, void, enlightenment, moksha, liberation, divinization, God-realization, whatever you want to call it. But at the same time, for the sake of technology of it, he has been very careful to define that this Samadhi can be of several types and you will see, as he defines it, that there are some eight, nine forms which are preliminary, and only the last of them, which can be considered the tenth, or according to some people, the sixth or the seventh, the classifications themselves differ, I will tell you in a second. Why? Only the last one is what is called classically Nirvikalpa Samadhi, or Nirbija Samadhi, and they give other names for it as well and that is the one which corresponds to what Patanjali later calls Kaivalya, the complete pristine isolation of the spirit, discrimination of the spirit, which is Purusha, not contaminated by Prakriti, and therefore it would be a perfect state of void, a perfect state of non-manifestation, a perfect state of nirvana, a perfect state of spiritual realization, of Atma, of self-realization. Therefore, remember that Patanjali has the courage to catch the bull by the horns, to use the word Samadhi, which was misunderstood as just a simple concentration with absorption, and he his courage goes so far that he actually allows that the lower forms of Samadhi should precisely be still some form of absorptive concentration, although those are very high forms of absorptive contemplation, concentration as well. Now, the words which Patanjali uses for this, they become denominating words, and it is not in the purpose of this commentary, which I do for you here, that we should analyze scholarly all the Sanskrit and small things. There exist super-scholarly translations, very hard, very difficult, my purpose is to try to make things understandable, logical, rational, practical, down to earth. And as well as to interpret these things from the standpoint of chakras, energies, and the style of work which you already have. Because else just the work with the mind, for some people, is a bit too abstract. Nevertheless, I will mention, you don't need to re- write them uh, You can read them in books and of course I can provide them to you. I can write them on the board at some point. The four words here, I'm reading again this sutra. Patanjali says this samprajnata, samadhi, he calls this lower category, the ones which are not ultimate, but which are like the last steps of the ladder, the last uh, steps towards realization. He calls them samprajnata, samadhi as opposite to A-Samprajnata Samadhi. There is a meaning in these words, but it is not very important. A-Samprajnata Samadhi simply means no Samprajnata Samadhi. So it's like a mirror reflection. This one is under, this one is above. The Samprajnata Samadhi, which means the ones with support, this is the meaning of it, that they have a material support, a more concrete support, they are the ones which are the lower ones. They are the entry into Samadhi. They are the entrance into Samadhi. They are the first forms as we go into it. And they are called globally Samprajnata Samadhi. And this sutra can be read in two ways. He says the Samprajnata Yoga or Samprajnata Samadhi is accompanied by reasoning, reflection, bliss, and sense of individuality. This automatically, the Sanskrit words used are vitarka for reasoning, which means splitting the hair and uh, deducing things, vichara for reflection, um, ananda for bliss, ananda for bliss, and asmita for sense of individuality, minus. This sutra can then be interpreted in two ways. In one way, which is, both are true. This is the miracle of Sanskrit language, that it can express multiple meanings, uh, and that's why it's very difficult to translate it in a short version in the Western languages. The The first meaning which comes is, Patanjali says, the lower forms of Samadhi, which are still of this world, they are very high states of mind, but they are still of this world, they are still accompanied by reasoning, reflection, bliss, and sense of individuality. Which means during these state of samadhi, you can feel like some intense reasoning, like suddenly you understand the reason of the universe, suddenly you see the music of the spheres, and the harmony of all kinds of things in this universe. Sometimes it's like a very high form of knowledge, by reflection, like a form of meditation, it's like a deeper understanding, bliss, uh, that there appears in meditation a feeling like I have come home, I'm happy, I'm blissful, I'm realized, it feels so right, and sense of individuality, that in the middle of this experience I know who I am, and I know that I'm blissful, and it's like my ego is uh, blown to some very, very high dimensions. Therefore, it is like Patanjali says, this lower form of Samadhi, which he calls here Samprajnata Samadhi, again, this lower form of Samadhi is still of this world. You can recognize it because there is a bit of thinking, there is a bit of reflection, there is a little bit of uh, sense of I-ness and so on. This is one thing and it can be interpreted this way, If you want to go a little bit deeper than this, you have to look into the second interpretation as well. The second interpretation is that the inferior, inferior is a very bad way of saying it, because they are higher than almost any daily life experience that anybody ever has. So they mean exceptionally high state of consciousness already, like 95% up there but inferior as when compared with the last one, with the ultimate one, which is indeed supreme. The second meaning simply refers and says these higher forms of Samadhi, they are related with levels of the mind, which are just before transcending of the mind, and those levels of the mind are called here Vitarka, Vichara, Ananda, Asmita, uh, ref- reasoning, reflection, uh, bliss, and um, sense of oneness. Here, there is something very subtle. Psychologically, the people who commented the Yoga Sutra, not thinking about the chakras and the energies, but just looking upon it as a mechanism of the mind, they have simply taken it very simple. Okay, there exists a manifested form of samadhi as I said, as I called it, an inferior form of samadhi. There exists an inferior, again, form of samadhi, which is related to reasoning, which proceeds from a very, very perfected reasoning. There exists a form of samadhi which proceeds or evolves from a very, very perfected reflection. There exists a form of samadhi which is issuing from a very, very refined and vast bliss, and there is a form of Samadhi, which is issuing from a very, very refined perception of the eye. And therefore, there would be like four families of Samadhi in this category of samprajnata Samadhi. The further commentators, they even split the hair even more, and they have said each of these categories can be subdivided in two. For example, if I'm having the first of these categories, is what we call in English here, reasoning. The Sanskrit word for it being Vitarka. And therefore, I'm having really the first one is Vitarka manifested, and this Vitarka, this reasoning taken up to a super genius level, like you can say that you reason like, I don't know, Albert Einstein or Niels Bohr, on the structure of matter, and then you reach to some form of bliss, to some form of samadhi, which allows you to understand the structure of matter and universe and energy and everything. Therefore, this can be considered like some supreme genius level. And now, you are reaching this, and some commentators have said you can reach it with Vitarka, so based on this Vitarka reasoning, or by switching this Vitarka of you reason as you reason until you somehow don't reason anymore. And they have called these two divisions of it by the Sanskrit particles, Sa, which means with, and Nir, which means without. So this becomes Sa Vitarka and Nir Vitarka, and therefore they say in a scholarly way they are the two forms of samadhi called sa-vitarka-samadhi and nirvitarka-samadhi. Then if you go to the next category, it's vichara. So there would exist sa samadhi and nirvichara-samadhi. Then there would exist sa-ananda, sa-ananda-samadhi and nirananda-samadhi. And the final of them was asmita. And there will exist sa-asmita-samadhi, sa-asmita-samadhi. Or, and near us, Mita, Samadhi. Uh, these things, many of you would say, and so what? You know, it's kind of, what can we do with it, you know? I am I would be coming here and telling you, dear fellows, maybe you cannot reach to the real, real high forms of Samadhi, but some of you should be trained very well in Ajna Chakra and all that stuff. So let's do some, uh, what shall we do tonight? Some Nirvichara Samadhi. Let's go, it's kind of what? What is the difference between that and, you know, it's kind of, one is with reasoning, one is with, I can't even understand what the difference between reasoning and reflection is. And, you know, it kind of doesn't tell me anything. This is a scholarly distinction, which maybe has satisfied the brains of some pundits, of some scholars, but in practice most people don't know how to relate to it. They say, how do I meditate? so that I reach Nirvichara or Savichara or Tarka or Savitarka. Or it kind of sounds, you know, there is no psychological compass which can me guide me through this labyrinth of the mind. If it's reason, if it's reflection, can't even understand the difference between those two, how am I going to get there? That is why, remember that most people simply say, OK, forget about it. You do meditation with mantra or whatever your teacher has taught you. You do meditation of mindfulness or whatever system you are in. And as your energy is going further, 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 you start going through these steps. nir, vichara, savichara, whatever. I don't put them in order now. I should be really strict. But it doesn't matter. Especially I want to point to this thing that you don't know exactly what is what. And basically the idea would be, <coughs> let's take it in a very general way. There would be some samadhi, which is related to some functions of the mind, and finally, uh, you are supposed to go beyond all those, four of them, or eight of them, actually two times form, sa-vitarka, nir-vitarka, two times each of those four, and reach to some of the super-spiritual supraconsciousness forms of Samadhi. The meaning being that almost nobody, even the commentators of Yoga Sutra, have never been able to give a technique and a very clear analysis by which they should say, you should start making concentration on this ventilator, and when you focus and you feel this, then you should know that that is Savitarka Samadhi. Nobody really gives such analysis, because psychologically it is very difficult to express, because the mind is a labyrinth. The mind is so subjective and so refined, <coughs> that it's very difficult to see that. On the contrary, if you really want to understand what Patanjali said here, although it's not, it's still a half scholarly thing, but it will show you that Patanjali, when he said this, Either he had an exceptional intuition or he had a very special clairvoyance with a perception of some high principles of reality. It appears very clearly from the standpoint of the Tantric tradition and it is most especially the metaphysical Tantric tradition of Kashmir Shaivism, which uh, goes very well into that. It appears, as I said then, that... Uh, Patanjali is referring to some basic energies. Any one of you, and I cannot explicitate this fully, so it is for those of you who study yoga, if you have heard about this, you will understand immediately what I say, and if you haven't heard about this, it means you are going to hear about this throughout the yoga courses, because these things are technical, and they require a further elucidation. These four steps... These four characteristics, which Patanjali says, puts here, they are not without a meaning in terms of energy and chakras. They actually do have a meaning, but funny enough, as I read them here, and I can read them in Sanskrit and see that even in Sanskrit, their order is garbled. Either Patanjali did it on purpose, or he simply picked this up from somebody else, and he knew it to be right, but he didn't bother about the actual detail. Here there is a small trick to it, because what Patanjali calls reasoning, it corresponds to what the Tantrics of India call manas and manas tattva. What he calls reflection, it corresponds to what they call buddhi or buddhi tattva. What he corresponds, what he calls sense of individuality, corresponds to ahamkara or ahamkara tattva. And then logically, what is next is, of course, the next Tattva, the next reality. The bliss then corresponds to Prakriti, which indeed is a global reality, what the Kashmir Shaivists call Prakriti Tattva. Therefore, this shows that this Samadhi is progressing through certain sub levels, through certain levels of the higher energies, which are called Tattvas, in case you didn't get that. And therefore, he actually means that in terms of energy, you should be able to differentiate them and they go deeper and deeper. Any one of you who is knowledgeable in terms of tattvas, chakras, levels and sub-levels, Kashmir Shaivism and similar things, will understand more clearly to which chakras this refers, where you put it and so on. The scope of this revelation surpasses much an introductory lecture on the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, because it would demand too many, way too many technical concepts to be brought here, which are vastly surpassing the scope. And therefore, until then, remember, there is a system, and Patanjali, according to some very clear energies, he defines four steps, further subdivided in two steps, like plus and minus each by the scholars, which defines no less than than eight preparatory stages of Samadhi. For your rough information, let's also mention that according to what I have just said, these forms of Samadhi are related, all of them as it appears, to Ajna Chakra, to the arousing of Ajna Chakra. That is why the yoga of Patanjali is so much in Ajna Chakra, that's why this subject of yoga is so much focused in Ajna Chakra. That's why this yoga is called Raja Yoga, Yoga of the Mind, Yoga of the Third Eye, Yoga of Ajna Chakra. It all has to do with a deepening of the experience at that level. Enough with this comment. This sutra is hiding many connections and we'll come back to some other aspects of this text and then I will send you back to this sutra and where it describes the four preparatory stages. But Patanjali is very brief, he just mentioned them for the time being, and the sutra 18 gives us the alternative. He says, the other samadhi, which means what? We're talking about samprajnata, what's the other samadhi? The other samadhi is a samprajnata, it's the other one. Now he jumps to the opposite side. He always compares them like this and that's why he's so very clear. The other samadhi, Asamprajnata samadhi, which is the superior one already, is preceded by a continual practice of stopping the content of the mind. In it, the mind remains in the form of traces. A few very important things are coming here. First of all, Asamprajnata samadhi, the even higher samadhi, says he is preceded by a continual practice of stopping the content of the mind, which means these kind of meditations where you transcend a lot of things of the mind and the mind like calms down. This calming down of the mind is like the first premise is the first important thing in yoga both in the Yoga of Patanjali and in the Tantric Yoga. Therefore, what does he say? He says, in Asamprajnata Samadhi, there is nothing about reasoning, there is nothing about reflection, there is nothing about Ananda or uh, Ahamkara, the perception of the eye. It's like you are dwelling into such peace, into such silence, that this this level of the mind becomes almost like a void. It's like the mind calms down and down and down and down, and it stops. Here, the beautiful experience of Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, before he has reached the actual nirvikalpa and the supreme forms of samadhi, uh, when he has reached his first forms of samadhi, when he reached samadhi because of his meditation upon the great cosmic power Kali. He meditated with Kali, He went through this crisis where he wanted to commit suicide because he was so frustrated. Suddenly he entered into this state of Samadhi and then he gives some flabbergasting descriptions about this ecstasy. And one of the levels he says, then everything disappeared. The whole universe fell apart. The room, the walls of the room, everything. There was just an ocean of spirit. And then he says the ideas were like some very, very vague, things on the background of the mind fading away and away he says alone the sense of the I-ness, this I the ego, the mental ego kept repeating itself like yes I am, but I am, yes I am and I am, and it kept repeating but even this one lost momentum like a slowing down wheel which loses speed and even this became like ah, and eventually even this one stopped and then he said, I lost myself into this experience, uh, into this cosmic consciousness. Therefore, he describes here exactly that these aspects of the mind stopping one by one, he actually is going from Samprajnata Samadhi to asamprajnata Samadhi, where all these aspects of the mind, they stop. Honey enough, Patanjali is very scrupulous in telling us the second thing, The other thing, this samadhi is preceded by a continuous practice in stopping the content of the mind. Therefore, how do you reach to a higher samadhi? By going into lower samadhi and staying very quiet in it, letting the mind stop into it. So you go, and then you let this mechanism of the mind make... And it's guaranteed that after a while it stops. Therefore, you can go further. Basically, Patanjali says to go from the lower samadhis, which he still have some mental content, to the higher samadhi of this kind, then automatically you have to keep it for long. He says it is preceded by a continual practice of stopping the content of the mind. That's why it's very difficult to assume that somebody will reach a high samadhi suddenly, out of the first try, in the first day. Did it happen in the history of mankind? Apparently it happened a few times, but that's the exception, not the rule. And now he completes in this sutra, he adds a few very significant words. He says, in it, in this samadhi, which is the superior one, which is a superior one actually, better said, the mind remains in the form of traces. This is very important. First of all, let's define this concept of traces. The traces are called here samskara, and in other yoga texts they are also called vasana. Vasana or samskara is more or less the same thing. Some scholars make some scrupulous distinction between them, but for the purpose of practice I can assure you that it doesn't make much difference. What is samskara? Samskara means that whatever has marked your existence in this life and in all the previous lives that you have had, has developed some aptitudes of the mind. For example, you might have become very willy. You have had a very big willpower. If you are a very voluntary person with a very big willpower, at some point you will want to get rid of that because it nags you. In Samadhi you don't need that. It just becomes a pain in the neck. But basically, in the moment when it's there, it leaves a trace. It doesn't go away completely, completely. Somewhere at the level of the deepest levels of the subconscious mind, it leaves like a seed. It's exactly like you are trying to exterminate a weed, and as much as you cut it, even to the level of the soil, the root is still in the ground. And in proper conditions... In uh, adequate conditions, for example, if you water it, the root of the weed will sprout again and it will produce another weed. Which simply says, in the human mind, there exist samskaras. Some of these samskaras are immediately activated. Let me give you an example. Uh, Samskaras tend to be activated by karmic reasons. For example... Let's suppose that a human being has been a warrior in a previous life. Whatever. Napoleon or a samurai or something like this. Therefore, that human being develops a sort of manipura chakra. A manipura chakra which is more violent, more vehement, more aggressive. Of course, with more courage, with more willpower. Something which is a bit uh, strong. This, of course, in the moment when this person is born in the next life, the brain of that child is virgin, is completely unwritten. It's like a blank hard disk on a computer. It has to be written. And the child is writing it to the experiences of every day. He learns to grab, to eat. He learns that this warm thing is mom and gives him milk. He learns all kind of things through the experience of the senses. And slowly, slowly, the brain gets programmed, and it takes years and years for the brain of a human being to be programmed, and it actually continues the whole life. But, of course, these programs are actually causing a lot of trouble at the same time, because sometimes we can't stop them from running, and these programs all the time keep running, and they obscure For us, they hide for us what we really want to see. Now, coming back to our story. The samskaras are exactly like some predominances which await to be activated. Let's make it very clear. It's not the samskaras which blossom by themselves. They are waiting for some circumstances. For example, I am a person who has in a previous life had a very powerful Manipura chakra. In this life, according to my karma, and my karma is produced by other factors which we cannot discuss right now, but according to my karma, this Manipura aspect can be reinforced or it can be contradicted. In the meaning that, for example, this Manipura aspect is clean, is good, is pure. It is accepted by my spirit, or uh, there are other alternatives for which it would go through, and then automatically somehow something in my karma allows it to be developed. Already at the age of two or three, I am confronted with a snake, with a dog, with some frightening experience. I am having a very good teacher parent who says, "Go grab it, chase it," and so on, and that that suddenly develops as a tomboy, as a real, brave, die-hard, breakneck type, and people say, wow, what a courage. And it's, of course, because I had the Manipura of a warrior from a previous life. Somebody who never had that from a previous life cannot develop it, or better said, let's rephrase this, they can develop it, but it will not come like this. It will not come to just two or three little things in the childhood, And it will grow up to be something which holds you for the rest of your life. It will have to be developed in years and years of training. For example, I am discovering that I am a chicken when I am 12 years old. And then I am asking my parents to send me to a martial artist to teach me karate. And I am doing 8 years of karate until I get my black belt. And then somehow my courage and my manipuristic manliness and whatever is developed because I worked eight years on it to develop it. But the other dude got it at the age of three already when confronting himself with a dog or with something, with some danger, because he had it from a previous life and he didn't need to develop it. The Samskara was there. It just waited for a little water and it became again the same thing. So the Samskara is waiting for its fruition. Now, here is a situation. I have been a warrior in a previous life, but I have been involved in bloody events. I have shed blood. I have done violence, which is not good in the big picture. And uh, actually, I have come to the threshold of a transformation. I am turning into a spiritual being. I have been doing some meditation, some religion. I have once been meeting with a very wise man or wise woman who gave me. And my soul... Starts going towards spirituality. I don't want to be a warrior anymore. A warrior sucks. I want to get away from this thing. And I want to reach something really spiritual. And then my karma can be pretty shitty. Because I have done violence. And that violence is there in my backpack. And therefore something in my karma. My spiritual aspirations. The lords of the karma. Which are helping me to organize the next life in an as profitable way as possible, spiritually profitable as possible, they are making an arrangement. In the next life, although you will have the samskara of courage and struggle, the warrior samskara, although you will have it, we are going to generate in you such circumstances and even some traumas and fears that you will never stumble over it. It's like you have the samskara of a warrior, but for the next 70 years in your life, you will never water it. You will never reach to some circumstance or something which will value it. You know why? Because if you would do it, it would sprout immediately and you would do exactly what you did in your previous life. You would just simply play the same trip again. And we don't want you to fall into the same trip. So therefore, we are going to keep this samskara like suppressed. It is there, but we don't give it any water. And therefore, remember that the samskaras can become active or not, according to karma and according to a lot of very, very subtle factors. But the samskaras are there. And here is the problem. As long, now you can understand fully, the implication of what Patanjali says. Patanjali says, in even in Asam Prajnata, Samadhi, in it, the mind remains in the form of traces, which means it's not completely wiped out, at a very deep level, let's call it for the sake of understanding, a causal level, because this is already at the level of the causal body, there remain the Samskaras, and these samskaras, therefore, make that at a very difficult to conceive level, your mind is not blank. It is still having the seeds of something to come. And therefore, let's suppose that I am having the seeds of this samskara, and I have reduced all my mind just to samskaras. Therefore, on the front value of it, people are coming to me and saying, Hey, Baba, how is your mind right now? And I'm saying my mind is like an ocean without waves. You know, I'm not having, I'm so calm in my mind. They're asking me, Baba, when is the last time you have experienced a state of courage or a state of, uh, I don't know, heroism, something, struggle, or other states of mind? I just took this one as an example. Whatever other states of mind. And I'm saying it's a long, long time. It must be at least five years since I've been confronted with any... I can say that in the last five years my mind has been such a peaceful ocean, I have nothing. Does this mean I am free? I have reached the state of yoga and freedom? No, because I still have the samskaras or the vasanas. They are lurking there. And then people come and visit me or not, that doesn't matter. I am a baba with a clean mind. For the last five years I didn't have any of these disturbing samskaras. And I'm living in my cave or in my hut in the jungle or in the mountains. I'm a very serious yogi. And there, suddenly in the middle of this, let's suppose I'm not practicing so much. I'm just enjoying my state of peace. And there in the middle of it, suddenly my dwelling is attacked by an elephant or something. A panther is coming by. And then I'm taking a big branch with burning fire and I go like in the jungle book. Go! and so on, and I'm fighting. Kind of suddenly, I feel in me that I'm a hero, you know, I can fight the elephants, I can fight the tigers, I'm not afraid, and so on. Which means that bloody samskara was just waiting for such a circumstance to sprout again, because the root was not eradicated. Therefore, the implication is very clear. As long as the roots have not been eradicated, the samsara, attention, not the samsara, the samsara of Buddha which means the chaining to this world has not died it is still in you waiting for such events that is why people being at this level they did not want to be disturbed by anything because they realized that everything can sprout a thing in your mind that is why (coughs) such spiritual practitioners would be vigilant they will say yes I have been cleansing my mind for five years, and now I'm having a waveless ocean in my mind. But you know what? Yesterday I have gone into the marketplace, and I have witnessed some things, and some of these ripples started coming back. My samskaras, some of my samskaras, though the ones which are corresponding to the events to which I was a witness, started coming back. And therefore the mere fact that I have been in the marketplace has screwed my mind. I have to come back and say no. And to do again what I have done five years ago, to start wiping it out again. To calm them down, to squeeze them, to evaporate them. Which means I always have to be on the watch. This is the meaning of the people doing retreats. In a retreat you calm down the samskaras and you start wiping them. And as soon as you come out, your samskaras start growing again. Unless you have reached at the level of a Buddha. And that is why you all the time have to be careful because the mind comes forth. It's the nature of the mind to sprout like weeds again. Here is a story from the fathers of the desert, the Christian mystics. They had a very, very, from the 5th century approximately... AD, they had a very practice in which they would obtain this state of calmness of the mind by a practice which sounds almost too simple, but if you are ever going to try it or if you are going to meditate profoundly at it, you are going to see that it's not simple at all. They were supposed to spend weeks, months, and years in a whitewashed cubicle, in a room without nothing, in the cell. Like the monks living in cells. And you should not have paintings on the walls. And you should have no icons, no images, no books, no nothing. You should just have a white wall. Four white walls and space enough to sleep. And you should stay there. Uh, Does it matter what you do in there? Not really. In the beginning you can start by masturbating, for example. How long will you masturbate in a whitewashed room? Okay, three months. After three months, even that will die. Slow. If you stay in that bloody room and somebody brings you food and you don't see anything and anybody and no, you simply go crazy because your mind will fancy for a while when you'll stop masturbating. You'll start having theological thoughts and all kind of religious uh, visions and blah, blah, blah. And in time, even those will stop. If you spend 12 years in a white room, Your mind is blank as the walls of those rooms. One such elder, a very experienced one, was asked at some point to come outside and to do some chore. There was something. Normally they wouldn't have disturbed him, but there was an emergency. And this old man came out. This was in Egypt, therefore a pretty warm land. where you don't really justify such thing. But as he came out of his holy room, which was an empty room again, he came out with a beanie on his eyes, with a hat pulled over his eyes, almost like one of these terrorist hats or something, you know. It was just on his eyes like this, like a ski hat or something like this. And he he could just see to the, his feet. So he just came out looking at the pebbles and so on. He went and, you know, his field of vision was this as big as this. And he came out, he did whatever he had to do, he turned back, entered his room some of the younger ones who are not that perfected, they asked the old man, why did you, you know, we don't see you with ears, you have been ears in that room, and the only time you come out, you come out with a head pulled over your eyes, what is this? And the old man told them, if I come out and I see a single tree, that tree will occupy and torture my mind for weeks in a row after that. Because just seeing a tree... I'm spr- I'm watering some samskaras. And uh, for those samskaras afterwards, I have to fight with them. I have to kill them. I have to kill those weeds in my mind. Again, many of you say, well, that sounds really terrible and frightening. I'm reminding again, I'm talking and Patanjali very much talks and the first degree of spirituality very much talks about the first initiative in spirituality, which is escaping from Prakriti to Purusha. There is nothing friendly in it, according to this. I told you and I keep repeating. There is a second stage of spirituality, which means after you got the prize, after you got the gold crown of Nirvikalpa, then you can come back to this world as Shiva, dancing as the emperor of the universe, but only afterwards. If you come before, you are still a prisoner. Therefore, there are two very distinct stages. And the first stage looks a bit frightening because it involves a deprivation, a renunciation, a cutting off of everything. It's like, you know, jumping without a safety net. You leave everything and the big question is what if you don't find anything beyond? Therefore, that's of course what the mind gives us a worry because it's never like this. It's always going the beautiful way. So coming back to our story. Patanjali is warning us. Even in Asam Prajnata Samadhi, the causal level of the mind has not been destroyed and therefore the Samskaras are still there. So you are not safe. Should you be suddenly go out of your retreat, go out of your room, go out of your cell and suddenly confront the world, the weeds will restart growing. The only difference will be that you... Compared to the other people, we'll have a more weedless garden, relatively. But if you don't pay attention, in 10 years your mind can become as complicated and uh, therefore as disturbing as the mind of anybody else. If you clean a garden of weeds today and then you don't clean it for 10 years, in 10 years you will not be able to say which garden has been cleansed 10 years ago. It will make no more difference. That is why the problem is how to get control over this process of re-sprouting again of all those things. I remember I once had the chance to speak with a genuine, because there are very few of them left in the world today, and even this one has passed away a few years ago. I've had the opportunity to speak with a real, the real thing, a genuine Christian mystic, ...who had been spending nine years in the forest alone doing prayer... ...and who was a genuine miracle maker. He was indeed one of the rare miraculous people in that field that I have seen. And this man was having a program that in some days of the week... ...he came down, he lived somewhere on a mountain in a hut... ...and he came alone completely... And he came down and he spoke with people answering their question and giving them inspiration. And he did that for one hour, two hours in the afternoon, not every day, in some days. And then I have been joining one of these meetings and indeed he was super inspiring. His spiritual power was something memorable. And then he stays there and answers questions and he was a very fiery person as well, really beautiful character, but very, very pure, extremely spiritualized, and then he says, well, I've got to go. And the people there, a group of people like you, would say, well, no, stay a little bit more, because we have some more questions, and so on. And this old man would look to them, and he would say, my dears, while I've been sitting here and chit-chatting with you, which, of course, it was not chit-chat, it was actually a very, very important spiritual transmission, but he called it chit-chat. While I've been here and chit-chatting with you, The weeds have been growing on my field meanwhile. And I have to go and plow my field, work my field to take the weeds away. Which simply he said, two hours sitting without ceaseless prayer and sitting here with you and mingling with your impure minds, I have got samskaras. My samskaras are already sprouting. So I have to go back to do my level of prayer because I have to stay pure. Therefore, for him, even two hours was a sack. He knew that it was a deliberate sacrifice, which he did, but he was very conscious. He didn't lose himself. Like, oh, how, you know, people listen to me with enraptured attention. I am so spiritual. I am so good. Not only the cheap trap of egoism and pride, but this, like, oh, I should do it tomorrow as well. People are getting something out of this. I should I should instead of two hours I should give them four hours. No, this guy knew two hours from time to time because else I myself am ruining myself and I have to keep up my spiritual level. Somewhere up there I have to press. This is the meaning of it, and this is the level which Patanjali defines as a samprajnata samadhi. Which is, it would be like the ninth level. We said we had four double levels, therefore all in all eight levels of Samprajnata Samadhi, and above them there comes the A Samprajnata Samadhi, which is superior. Here, the, all, it has been preceded by the practice of stopping the content of the mind, but still the samskaras are there. It's not the ultimate solution. We also should mention clearly that every depth of samprajnata samadhi is intermixed with the state of asamprajnata samadhi. That's why you have that duality with sa-vitarka, nir-vitarka. It's too complex psychologically and you don't need to go into this because practically you can't get anything out of it really. And that asamprajnata samadhi, this ninth form, is not the same with Nirbija, Samadhi, to be mentioned later in the text. Patanjali himself later mentions another form of Samadhi, which is Nirbija, and that is indeed Nirvikalpa, which this one is not yet, because in this one, the Samskaras are still there, although in a totally latent condition. Some authors... The Nirbija Samadhi, or the Nirvikalpa, as it will be called, is the highest form of Samadhi mentioned in the Yoga Sutras, and therefore both Samprajnata and Asamprajnata are varieties of Sabija Samadhi. There is another classification in which these nine are under the head of Sabija, and the last one is Nirbija. The same game with words, Sa and Nir. Sa, Bija with seed, Nirbija without seed. The word Samskara may be translated therefore in English as latent impressions or dormant past impressions, but this is perhaps not always the best translation, because they mean some potentialities at the level of the mind. Samskara is the seed of consciousness which survives up to the state of samprajnata samadhi, and in asamprajnata samadhi is latent. Some of these things are highly technical, and I am no, having no doubt that they can cause some difficulties. That's why we work on Ajna a little bit before and after for assimilating these things, But and that the text is a bit dry, but actually through implication, what Patanjali describes here, are the essentials of the mind, and the essentials therefore of evolution of the spiritual progress. So understanding them deeply, you'll understand much more about what you have to do where you are in the big picture and things like this. I think I I'll manage to read one more sutra and to comment it. Let's see actually how long this comment comes. I am moving to the Sutra number nineteen. In the Sutra nineteen he actually mentions some effects of this Asamprajnata samadhi. He mentioned some prajnata with eight sub levels Asamprajnata, Prajnata, in which there are still these samskaras, these latent impressions, and then there are two readings here. One says, the Videhas, which, uh, let me give you the European names directly, because the Sanskrit names, there are so many of them, they will drive you crazy. Those of you who have love of Sanskrit and love of the original text, you can study versions of the text where the translation of each word and each word is given, so you can see how actually the Sanskrit sentence is articulated. But for the purpose of this comment, I don't want to go to such extent, exception made sometimes when it's very relevant. So, the deities and the so-called Prakriti Laya Yogins, which means those having already reached Samadhi in previous lives (coughs) or in previous moments, can have birth as the cause of as- Asam Prajnata Samadhi and this is what is also called Bhava Pratyaya asamprajnata Samadhi. Let's make clear this idea. This sutra is again a sutra with two meanings which say very important things. The first one, let's take the, the rare meaning of this sutra which is nevertheless the more simple to explain. The rare meaning is exactly as I read. I'm reading again with explanations the deities and a certain kind of yogis, they have birth as cause for their asamprajnata samadhi. Which means the mere fact that they are born makes them reach samadhi. Have you heard about such yogis? Here are three simple immediate examples. One, Mai. She claimed that she had states of samadhi since she was two years old and she got a reflexive consciousness. She simply said, ever since I can remember myself in this life, I was like this, in this state of super-consciousness. Other example, Krishnamurti, Jiddu Krishnamurti, when they discovered him, when they localized him at the age of six, he was already having states of Samadhi, not produced by any practice or anything in this life. A bit of a later example, but still produced exactly in the same way. Ramana Maharishi. Ramana Maharishi reached Samadhi at the age of 17 without having done a minute of yoga or meditation in his life. All these three are people who they have birth as reason for their Samadhi. Their Samadhi came from birth. How can Samadhi come? The mere fact that you are born makes that you are going to have Samadhi. Why? Because you have reached it in a previous life already and it is ripe there for this purpose and therefore this Asamprajnata samadhi once reached if you don't go further to Nirvikalpa samadhi and to the full spiritual realization which can stop the wheel of reincarnation forever or at least control it at will whenever you want for all the others reaching at least Asamprajnata samadhi it makes that it can be reached again in the next life or that if you choose so it will actually come forth spontaneously. You are born as a child and sometimes you have such manifestations. It is not only the big yogis who had this. <coughs> there are countless examples of Christian mystics and others, mystics of all kind of metaphysicians and others who had this kind of spontaneous thing. Some of them are not even known as mystics. For example, the famous American poet Walt Whitman he had a state of samadhi without ever understanding what it was and why it was. He got hit by samadhi and his family and he himself for years believed that the old man was crazy because the perspective was so different from the bourgeois American society of the 19th century. Imagine in all that society uh, which you see almost in Western movies and so on. Suddenly you get somebody reaching to the Nirvikalpa samadhi in the, or some samadhi, not Nirvikalpa, in the same style with Ramakrishna. What will they be able to make out of it? Nothing. It's like madness. You know, you should... Therefore, it was very disturbing. He is not the only one. I know of the examples of others. Of course, you can say, why did uh, Samadhi come to Walt Whitman and he was born in America and he didn't have somebody to whisper into his ear? Because if he would have been born in India like Ramana Maharishi, he would have at least known what hit him and found somebody to talk about it or somebody to guide him, to tell him a few good words or at least to read an Upanishad or something which could enlighten him in some way. Yes, those are very difficult issues. There are aspects of karma. There are aspects of very, very fine, final elements of karma which are related to those. And you can find such events, such persons. Therefore, the first says, person, the first interpretation says, persons who have reached Asamprajnata prajnata samadhi, in their next life they can have samadhi just like that, because they have been born, simply. Remember that that doesn't mean that they are fully enlightened and liberated, and that doesn't mean that their samskaras are exterminated, and their samskaras can grow up extensively. For example, the samskaras of Walt Whitman were not eradicated. Walt Whitman did not die completely as a happy, fortunate, spiritualized, enlightened being. It was a mix-up. In the same way, I have known others, there are other spiritual geniuses, who were, but not quite completely, because they didn't know that this work had to be continued that they had to follow up on this. The second interpretation of this sutra is much more dramatic, and it has a continuation further on, but you need to hear some of the things of it. It says, by reaching Asamprajnata Samadhi and not continuing to the perfect enlightenment, that means not eradicating those samskaras completely, the yogis can be born as deities or as prakriti laya yogins, which means yogins which are still related to the elements. The commentators of the Yoga Sutra have been prolific upon this, and it is one of the major themes which exists in Buddhism as well, and which simply says this much. If you do a lot of yoga, but not enough, you will be born as a deity, if you prefer as a god, but not the god, as a god in the meaning of god, goddess, deity, deva, devata in Sanskrit language, you will be born as a god in devachan, in the world of the gods, or as a yogi which has some extraordinary powerful uh, extreme powers of the mind or that is related to some elements that is the master of an element it's a very very complex term which simply says a fundamental truth as long as you haven't reached the nirvikalpa and its consequences automatically you can be deviated somewhere for example you can live you can be born if you do yoga let's say for 25 years successfully but not ultimately successfully, you can be born as a god, or as a goddess. When you will die, you will be very spiritualized, very sattvic, very pure, your crossing through the bardo will be amazing, your dealing with death will be very easy and from a very powerful way, but in those alternatives which you will have in the bardo, you will not choose the right one, you will choose the Deva Loka, the world of the Devas, the world of the gods and goddesses, the world of the deities, and the result will be that you will project be projected in a high paradise in a very high universe and there you will be born manifested as a god or a goddess depending on your sexual identity, of course, as male or female. And that's the end of it for the time being. You can be born as a minor deity, like an Apsara or a Gandharva or a Dakini or something like this. Or you can be actually even reached to the level of a major deity. The deities of the Hindu Vedic mysticism, which are identical to the deities of the Greek mysticism of the Roman antiquity of the Scandinavian antiquity tradition, they are the same because they correspond to the planets. Like, for example, to the planet Jupiter. You have Thor in Scandinavia. You have Jupiter in Rome. You have Zeus in Greece. And you have Indra in India. It's one and the same person called with different names. By di- Everybody knows that there is a Jupiterian spirit, which is very powerful and has power on this planet which is called Indra, Zeus, Thor, or whatever you want to call him. That is a deity. is a Deva or a Devata. Actually, they prefer Deva. Devata is used for the minor deities in Sanskrit to be completely correct. And therefore, but this Indra or Thor is not eternal. But an Indra can live according to the laws of Manu. An Indra can live one Manvantara, which is something like... Uh, 11 Mahayugas or something like this, which means something like 300,000 years. So Indra is Indra for 300,000 years. Afterward and before, there was another Indra. Therefore Indra is not forever. He exists there for a while. He comes because he has a good karma and here is the new king, long live the king. But at some point, the king is dead, long live the king. There comes another one when his karma is over. And therefore, this access to the world of the gods, to the Devachan, is not permanent. It's just incredibly good. It's kind of, to be a god in a paradise for 300,000 years, surpasses any kind of joy that you can imagine at this point. It would be like the combined joys of all the joys, uh, including the psychedelics and whatever, and held for 300,000 years non-stop. That's a great trip, but it's not yet the final solution, because when is over, Indra has to be reincarnated as a human being, or as something, whatever, on a planet, and then he has to resume evolution. The evolution does not stop, and they can actually even fall back. There are even Indian stories in their mythology, which uh, suggests that sometimes even these gods can develop pride, arrogance, because of being so cool, and then they can actually err, and they can reach where they don't want to reach. And therefore even their paradise is limited in time. (laughs) The yogis have not been interested in a limited experience of paradise, because that's like a psychedelic trip. It's just a trip for a while and the yogis are interested in eternity, not something which is for a while. That is why Patanjali feels the need to warn. When you do yoga to a very high level, but not yet to the last, you can be deviated in becoming a deity, and that will be very attractive, very fortunate, very blissful, very nice, very wonderful, but it's still not the ultimate answer be warned, you can become like a, he calls Prakriti Laya, yogi, related with some function in the universe governing a solar system or whatever, or being a deity Deva in the normal language in this uh, sutra they use an alternative word, Videha and therefore what I am trying to say here is that Patanjali and his commentators uh, Vyasa, for example, they made it very clear. They said, when you reach to this level, even it will will look to you like the gods and goddesses, come and greet you. And they say, hooray, great spiritual hero that you are. We are praising you. Welcome to Mount Olympus. Come and celebrate with us. You have escaped from that world of misery and now you are a god with us, gods. But a real yogi should look at it and say, no, you, these gods, whatever you call themselves, are temporary. It's true, you might be 300,000 years into it, but what is 300,000 years compared to eternity? If I am spending 300,000 years in fun, and then I am again at step one, okay, not at step one, but I am karmically at back at step one, and then I am in danger to go back to hell, to do wrong choices, to create negative karma, to do all those, and where is the fun of it? I just postponed the conclusion with 300,000 years, which eventually then they become lost years. Because you know what? It's much more smart to first say, I reached nirvana, I saved my soul, or ass, or whatever you call it, and then I choose to spend 300 million years in a paradise, as a holiday, as a well-deserved holiday. But even when that holiday is over, I'm not coming back. It was a holiday. It was not the end of my good karma. Therefore, it's much better to have it at your choice and for your duration of time, not because of the laws of karma, which compel you to be there or not. Therefore, Patanjali is warning. This Asamprajnata Samadhi, which still has traces of samskaras is not solving your problem and if you don't go further than this you will become in the next life a prakritilaya yogi or a deva a deity. That is the meaning of this. Of course, some forms of spirituality from the Vedas and even from Buddhism, from the Buddhist tradition they claim that a certain personal evolution is possible even in these conditions. So sometimes it does happen, and I cannot describe it as the worst tragedy which can happen, because it's much worse if you go to hell, for example. Then it's indeed bad. It's not the worst which can happen, but it is not the best either, and it should be put in the right perspective so that people understand what they are dealing with. I remember that some yoga teachers very developed at the level of Ajna Chakra, they do have this perception, I remember when I was learning from one of them, from my main yoga teacher in the old days, there was a girl who was doing some specific error. I mentioned this example to some of you during other workshops or discussions as an illustration of those issues. And this girl was making a repeated error in meditation. And the yoga teacher warned her that this meditation, but it looked to her really good. She was like going into a trance. And she felt really, really good. And this yoga teacher, who was her teacher, and therefore he was much more experienced than her, told her this is not the final answer to meditation. It's still a little trap. And this girl kept on going into that. And she kind of thought she she was satisfied with it. And after a while, after a number of months, six months or something, when this teacher realized that this woman is not listening simply, and she has a big head and she thinks she knows, then he simply took his hands off, but before, he simply warned her. He said, look, I can see I cannot get through to you, and you are doing what you want anyhow, but I have to tell you, it's my duty as a teacher to give you at least the last thing. He said, if you will continue meditating like this, You will be born as a goddess in a paradise. That's the final result of this meditation which you do. You will not reach Samadhi. You will not reach Samadhi in the meaning of Nirvikalpa Samadhi. Enlightenment, liberation. This is not good enough for liberation. It's good enough to make you a goddess. You want to become a goddess? Meditate like this further on. That's where it leads. Therefore, remember that this is not a theory For the yogis, this is a practical thing which is related with the various levels of meditation, of practice in yoga. Therefore, Patanjali has started and he will continue in the next session, most probably on Monday. There is a very small chance that there will not be a lecture on Monday because of some administrative things. Follow up the pin board because it will be announced uh, at least 24 hours in advance if there is lecture on Monday. But if there is lecture on Monday, on Monday I will continue. We are in the analysis that now Patanjali started explaining the state of Samadhi and the results which appear and he will continue with some amazing revelations in the further sutras. With this, I'm stopping for tonight. Uh, Please don't forget when you have questions, give them to the secretary or put them in the box there. For those of you who are worried, because I heard that opinion also, that they don't reach because that box doesn't have a lock, we are going to put a lock on that box as well, so you can be sure that the questions are not uh, hijacked by somebody else. And uh, finally, for tonight, let's do something which I forgot to do last uh, time when I spoke about the Yogastha of Patanjali. Let's conclude with a 5 minutes meditation on Ajna Chakra, so that some of these aspects get fixed and absorbed <laughs> So please, in silence, settle down and let us meditate intensely on Ajna Chakra so that all these sink harmoniously into the subconscious mind and they can become parts of your knowledge.